You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. episode 185 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. My name is Matt Phillips, creative one chat live.com. And as always, this episode is being recorded live on a Tuesday at o'clock on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel and also on the Sports Therapy Association Facebook page and the Facebook group. So plenty of ways to join us. If you are listening to the podcast and you do want to join us live so you can ask the, the actual guest questions directly or just hang out with other like-minded soft tissue therapists, then that's what you have to do. Just eight o'clock, head to one of those sources. So very shortly in this episode, thoracolumbar fascia and lower back pain. My special guest is going to be Claire Boucher, lecturer of sports therapy rehabilitation at Canterbury Christchurch University and PhD researcher at University of Kent. But first, as always, I want to give a massive thank you to last week's guests, plural. Uh, last week, because it was the first Tuesday of the month, we had our regular series, Ask Us Anything. Um, some of the questions on that included further education for massage therapists, sports therapist or physio. We had rebranding, renaming my business, which logo, how do you keep things fresh in your clinics, uh, nutrition consultation alongside sports massage, any recommended courses, and also a question about hiring an additional therapist. Is the subcontracting model effective? What's a fair hourly rate and commission split for therapists? So all of the answers to that were provided very graciously by our STA panel, who in this episode were made up by Daniel Peters, Director of Body Health Gatwick. Also, we had in the studio Mark Bleasdale, sports massage therapist in Landelaire, or apparently Wales is pronounced Chandelor. Penny DeMoss, the same as sports massage therapy. I can't wait for emails about that pronunciation. Uh, yeah, Penny DeMoss, the same as sports massage therapy, was also with us on the panel. And then last, oh, Sarah Clatworthy was here as well, from Sarah Clatworthy Sports Therapy. And then last but not least, founder of the STA, Gary Benson. And so, yes, like I say, if you do want to listen to episode 184, um, it's available, as always, on all popular podcast apps and on YouTube. And, of course, at the STA website, which is thesta.co.uk. Also, if you are an STA member and you'd like to be part of the STA panel on the next first Tuesday of the month, so using my math, that will be the first Tuesday of March, then you can email me, matt at the STA.co.uk. And if you fancy being on the panel and you're not an STA member, then look into becoming an STA member. Remarkably cheap and particularly effective and welcoming and warm and supportive. So there you go. Right then, by the way, if you are joining us via the Facebook open group and you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, then you do need to give Facebook permission for your image and logo to appear on the screen. There is a link in the comments, but if you are watching this live, and then I'm going to put the link up here on the bottom of the screen there. Now you can see that just there. It literally is. You just have to go to the website b.live forward slash comments hyphen issue. You do it once and it's just a Facebook security thing. So there you go. And if you do join us live, then obviously you can ask our guests questions directly and you can share your feelings. You can just hang out with each other. For example, in the live lounge at the moment, we've got Glenn Murphy. Hey, Glenn, let's just evening playmates. Back to the 80s, Glenn Murphy. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, good to see you here. As always, Gary Benson, founder of the STA, says, sorry I'm late to the party. Gosh, everyone's painting quite a picture of merriment tonight. I hope our guest realises that, that it's going to be entertaining as well as educating. 
Uh, Cecily Hislop has joined us as well. Hey, Cecily, how are you doing? Good to see you. We've got a Facebook user. Now, Facebook user, just to point out, the reason we can't see your beautiful face and all your name is because you just need to click that link, which is in the show notes, not in the show notes, it's in the comments for the open, the Facebook open group, or also you can see it at the bottom of the screen once I get rid of your comment. Or maybe you want to remain anonymous and haunt our guests for the rest of their lives without knowing who you are. It's fine. It's 2024. It's what we do. So there we go. Thanks for joining us, people live. So I think it's about time I've left her for long enough down in the lobby. As I say, tonight it's going to be Thrakalamba Fascia, lower back pain. So I shall bring up my special guest, Claire Boucher. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, Claire, how are you? Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm now a bit unnerved by the party vibe that's going on. Oh, there's so much. There's so much to be worried about. We've got a stalker in there. You'll never know who they are. And yeah, you expect we're expecting balloons and whistles. So yeah, there we go. But thank you anyway for joining us. Don't hope you don't mind. I won't. No, yeah, no, I won't. I mean, I did think I could bring out some party stuff. It's it's my birthday on Thursday, so it kind of fits, you know. So oh, seriously, I'm birthday for Thursday. Thank you very much. And I hear you've had a busy day today, yeah. Yeah, seven hours of teaching today, back to back without a break. So I am Ooh. a little bit flat, but the party vibe is obviously waking me up a bit. So do apologise if I'm a bit slow. Well, that's a wonderful segue into telling us about where you are in the country and what you've been teaching. That would be great. Yeah, so I'm down in Canterbury, so southeast of England, basically. I am currently working at Canterbury Christchurch University. I have also worked at the University of Kent over the past kind of five years. I've sort of jump between the two which there's a big rivalry between the two universities so it's quite comical that I'm that person between them both basically so so I'll give you my background really I suppose please I well started off with I was working as an exercise referral instructor in health and fitness industry for about well coming up 10 years really I've been in and out of different roles and I found that I was working a lot with people with lower back pain and we weren't really kind of understanding the kind of what was going on there I mean there's what 82% of the population with non-specific back pain and we don't really know what's going on there so that was always a big driver I suppose in me and kind of gaining further education I then went back into education did a sports science degree and then ended up with a PhD uh, kind of in sports therapy so my kind of sidestep into there was a bit comical really I was lying on the sofa with back pain with my legs in the air scrolling through twitter and i saw this phd application come up for thoracolumbar lumbar fascia and lower back pain and i thought what the hell is the thoracolumbar fascia why have i never heard of this in my 10 years of work and, and education i need to know more so i reached out to my well now supervisor and amazing researcher dr kira de Conig, and said Hi, I'm keen, but I know nothing. You know, how, what, what do you want? Are you interested? Can I apply? And then it kind of went from there, really. So I started my PhD and I started lecturing, lecturing in sports massage, a lot of kind of musculoskeletal anatomy, various different rehab modules and biomechanics and anything they could chuck me at, really. And now I'm sort of still doing a bit of everything, but today I was teaching exercise referral this morning and then introduction to kinesiology and msk in afternoon this afternoon so that's that's the whistle stops all to me really <laughs> uh, i think you've got a lot of people on your side now because it's beautiful the story of, of 
not how easy it is to get into these things. So obviously you've got to yeah, do no. work. But how, yeah, you're lying in pain with your back and you're looking through like people just swiping away, scroll, mm-hmm. scrolling the doom. And then suddenly, wow, that looks interesting. And I could do that. Yeah, and here you are. Brilliant. Mm. Very cool. Um, so the research, that is the title of today's episode. I'm just going to share this for people who have joined us live and put it on the screen. It's the second publication you've had so far to this date. And it uh, is on the screen now. Just go to ResearchGate in normal places and you'll be able to find what's going on. But yes, we're talking about pain, the relationship between the fascia and lower back pain. How long ago was this written? Wasn't that long ago, was it? No, so that was my, my first or second yeah. PhD study. So it's only, yeah, I've only, I've literally only just finished my PhD. I passed my Viber two weeks ago. So I'm in the process of sort of, thank you, writing everything up to get more and more things published basically but yeah that was kind of the first study i talked about so the data was collected 2021 2022 for that one excellent and that's gonna we're gonna be talking about that tonight before we do just to mention you're also very much involved i love looking you up it's on linkedin actually there's yeah. a lot of information about you there it was exciting to hear and um, that you're also working part-time i don't know how you find all the energy but part-time as a lead triathlon coach yeah 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 that's my weekend job so yeah, I can't really, I, I fell into that as well. It seems to be a habit with me. I was teaching spin class and there needed cover for the triathlon class afterwards. I was like, but at the time I couldn't really swim. I mean, I could swim to survive, but I couldn't triathlon swim. And I said, I can't do that. And they yeah chucked me in last minute and I love it. I, I love it. I've got a little WhatsApp group. We've been chatting today. There's about 40 of us in there about going up to London to watch the, one of the British Olympic get swim games and yeah, I love it. It's my little side hustle with sea swimming and triathlon. I can't stop. I, I have enough work. I can't getting that stop. pressure. Yeah, I'm getting that pressure. I think it's a few episodes of this podcast you need to look at, <laughs> into about taking time off. Yeah, how to say no. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Doing my spinning class whilst not teaching and then suddenly the opportunity came up to be a triathlon league coach. Yeah, jumped in. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, right. So a lot of passion and interest there. So we're looking forward to listening to this. So let's get straight into it, if, that's, if it's okay with you. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners will be familiar with fascia by now. It's been through different waves of popularity. Um, it's been credited, maybe overcredited sometimes, and then discredited too much. And it's kind of been very rocky. I'm interested, first of all, just to, in theory, it should be the same. But can you give us a little definition about fascia um, and its role in the body? That'd be lovely to start. Yeah. Okay. So basically our whole our whole body is covered in fascia and it's an area of it's connective tissue really that encompasses, think of it like a second, another organ really. It's underneath our skin and it covers all of our muscles, our whole body. And what we used to think of it, if we go back to, you know, 40 plus years ago, is that this tissue was purely there as like packing material and it meant nothing. So you'd see lots of research and evidence of surgeons going, well, we cut through that, that not, doesn't matter. And then we just get to what's interesting underneath, you know, the bones, the muscles, the tendons. And then we started to kind of go, well, well, actually, wait a minute. There's something here. We won't just have all this much packing material. It's got to have a purpose. We've started looking at the kind of the mechanical makeup of it, the kind of what's going on with the extracellular makeup, what's going on in terms of different nerve fibers. And we know that the thoracolumbar fascia, which is on the lower back between your decimus dorsi and your glutes, has more nociceptors than muscle so there's more ability to feel pain in this than anywhere else kind of in our body so how can it not be linked with back pain and that was kind of 
my main kind of burning question. So what we've had, I suppose, in in and around recent years of people going, this is the this is what's causing everything. This is the answer. And we've not quite managed to quantify that in the research yet. I'd argue there's certainly still something at play there, but it's what exactly? Is it the connective tissue and the dense and the loose layers? Or is it the extracellular matrix? How is it, you know, we don't know chicken or the egg, what's causing what kind of thing. But there's something definitely going on there, in my opinion, that I think warrants further research from research perspective and further kind of, I suppose, trial and error with different practices and manipulations to try and improve that clinically. Because, yeah, I'm kind of on both sides here. I want, I want to do the research, but I want to know how to treat the patient because ultimately what's the point otherwise if we're just finding all these numbers but if they don't help someone it doesn't really matter to me shouldn't say that as a researcher but it's true. <laughs> no that's a really wonderful beautiful modern interpretation of researchers because historically it has been a little bit kind of academia separated from the shop floor and that's why it's taken so long for results mm. to come through like between 30 and 18 years depending where you look yeah. and now we've got people like yourself it's very exciting we've had we've had others researchers who have turned into clinical or spoken directly to the shop floor like Dr. Ken and Insure is a good example of someone that's trying to connect the research with the reality. It's a very kind of modern idea and before it would have been poo-poo saying, no, you're either academic or you're I know. Or, you know, it's kind of like but now there's people like yourself who are like, brilliant. You're kind of thinking, mm. oh this is ridiculous. It's the same. We need to be together. Yeah. So now it's very exciting. And a woman as well, which I wasn't going to bring up, but you are. And that is that exciting <laughs> you have you noticed that that's because we've had a lot of guests who have said that one of the problems with the research is traditionally it's been done by men on men. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. A lot of differences are coming up depending on what you're working on. But are you aware that you are a woman working in research and that's something quite modern and good? I mean, I suppose so in that there's, there are less women in my universities that I've worked at than men. But on the flip side, of all the fascia researchers I know, I think I actually know more female researchers that are working with fascia specifically. So perhaps we're navigating our way there for some reason. I'm not really sure. But uh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest, because I just I've got my goals and my aspirations with research and training and all the rest of it. And it doesn't really matter to me that I'm female because I'm going to do it anyway. It's probably a very healthy answer. Oh, um, stubborn. <laughs> I didn't say that, by the way. Right. So let's bring up. But again, we've probably got mixed people. Um, listening and joining us live so we're just going to pick up uh, an image here it's, if you listen to the podcast and want to see the images then you can always hop off the podcast and go to youtube and obviously you'll see the recording there or you can go to the sta.co.uk and you can you can connect to the recording there so i'll bring this up into full page this is the area we're talking about mm-hmm. yeah give us an idea about what in particular the fascia in this area does and why it's an area of great interest for you yeah so i mean what we've got there is kind of it's a nice image i think it's from gray's anatomy i won't lie which is it's beautiful imagery so we've got the kind of green oval is showing you kind of the whole general area of the thoracolumbar fascia there so it's connecting say all the way up between the glutes and the latissimus dorsi where i've been particularly interested is the little square and that's not just on that side i have looked on both sides of the spine which is basically between l1 and l2 looking at that kind of interdisc space and we look two centimetres to the left and to the right of the spine. So we picked this area partly because, I mean, it's the lumbar spine. We know we get a lot of specific lower back pain in this area. But also, so we can try and, because I'm using ultrasound imaging, I'm trying to find an area of the thoracolumbar fascia that's relatively 
unaffected by the underlying tissue, be that the kind of curvature of the kind of the body as we go around the trunk or be that as we get lower with the glutes coming in or the vertebrae and all the rest of it. So that's kind of the, one of the flattest parts for me when measuring, which makes it easier for me to take the scans, if I'm honest. But it's also mimicked after Helen Langevin, who was a, what is a really, really big fascia researcher arguably the the pioneer here if I'm honest and that's where she started doing her studies and you'll see quite a lot of us are like yes that's where we're looking that works and and it makes some really nice images so yeah you, you can really see some nice healthy fascia and people with perhaps maladaptive fascia as well at that site fantastic and I'm interested you mentioned on the paper which is freely accessible as a lovely pdf we'll include the link in the show notes but you make a point of reiterating how lower back pain is like the leading worldwide cause of years loss of disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and you gave a statistic, I think 84% of the given population would experience lower back pain, which is incredible, really. Yeah. Obviously, it's probably multifactorial. It might be the fact we can't see it. That might have something to do with it. You know, mm-hmm. you get a headache, just rub it with the back. It's kind of like, oh, I can't see what's going on. But do you think maybe the fascia in this area is, is something which is to do with it? Do you think that makes it stand out? Yeah, I do. And I suppose, I suppose that's, that's my opinion in a way, because, you know, there's lots of evidence now. And I've recently started reading about kind of that nociceptive and nociceptive pain kind of for back pain coming from the CNS, basically. But mm. I, I think, I do think it's multifactorial. I don't think I will ever be able to go, yes, it's just fascia a hundred percent, but I think it plays a role there. I think fascia is adapting and I, we can see differences with people with pain and without pain. Whether that's a cause of the back pain or caused by maladaptive movement patterns, perhaps we're, you know, we all know if we're in pain, we hold ourselves differently. We're probably more likely to be sitting or lying down. I certainly was. We're not doing that regular movement, physical activity. So I think it, I think it's got to play a role. If it's got that many pain receptors, how is it not? And we also know that it's connecting everything. So when we get back pain, we very rarely go, oh yes, it's exactly this one point. It's more, this kind of overarching kind of numbness, perhaps tingling sensation that covers a lot of ground. It's like toothache. You generally don't feel it in one spot. It radiates, doesn't it? And that makes me think with the back anyway, that maybe that's fascia because it's it's just so all-encompassing kind of pain. Wonderful. And and we're going to get onto what your study seeks to, to prove or look at and, and demonstrate. But essentially some of what you were looking for looking for had been shown before to do with the thickness and um, so if you could like kind of talk to us a little about what you thought you were going to find and then we can go mm-hmm. into what you actually did find yeah so i mean again started off with that helen langevin so she had a few studies 2009 2011 if you're interested in fascia look her up and go read them because she'll blow your mind but she basically found it was a 25 percent increase in thoracic lumbar fascia thickness in those with pain i think it was around a 25 20 sorry reduction in echogenicity she also looked at shear strain, which is the, the gliding capabilities of fascia. So as we move, they glide. I didn't have good enough equipment, unfortunately, to measure that one. So I stuck with the, the two kind of single images. But I was sort of hoping, I suppose, and finding and hoping to find that same kind of pattern, you know, that significant difference, that 20 plus percent kind of variety. But it hasn't been found by anyone else, not at that significance level. We're seeing trends, but we're, we haven't been able to recreate that. And I mean, I didn't either. I found a difference, but it wasn't it wasn't anywhere near that. I think it was about 11 percent. I can't, can't remember the life of me. Right? You'd think I'd know it by heart by now, but I don't. But yeah, it, it wasn't significant. So there are differences. But why are they not? 
I'd argue that potentially populations. I looked at sedentary, non, not physically active, you know, and relatively low levels of pain. So my participants, I would say, were, and that's for, for all of my all, three ultrasound studies, I think all three of them were very, what I would describe as kind of a, a typical population with pain. So, you know, we've all perhaps all 87 percent have this low level of pain perhaps it's going on for a long time with that chronic perhaps it's recurrent but it's not enough to stop us from functioning and that I suppose is what I was looking at I wonder and this is my theory I think perhaps we start seeing those significant differences if we look at people with very high levels of pain it's going to be much harder for me to recruit them because you're in a lot of pain you probably don't want to come into my lab so I can scan you and do some exercise and movements with you and see any differences and yeah I mean that's what I basically that was the outcome of my PhD that I need to do more <laughs> to find more with different pain levels and just keep going the whole time. But yeah, I think I that's, that needs to be the results of anyone who does. I've never done research, but everyone we talked to on the show seems to think, and our conclusion was more studies need to be done. <laughs> you know? no, it, it pretty much is. I can see a message from Nikki in the chat saying, you know, yes. the Landerman study was really pivotal for finding these differences, but yeah, couldn't conclude the chicken or the egg. We still don't know. We still don't. We don't at all. I did the one of my studies was a a six month exercise intervention, which was long. I won't lie. So I did had 45 participants. We split into different groups for the control and we did two 55 minute exercise classes with me instructing twice a week, every week for six months, which was a lot. (laughs) Keeping the people active. We enjoyed it. We had great fun actually I made some proper friends with these people with all with pain and we did ultrasound at the beginning three months in six months at the end and then six weeks post and I thought well this surely will tell us something you know something significant about this because six months of difference and again we saw changes and certainly a trend towards a reduction in thickness and a change in echo but it wasn't significant so we still don't know what's causing what and I think for that we need studies really looking at kind of before that onset of pain. We need a, a lot more like that and following them on, which takes time and money. I know Carlos Seco has been doing a lot of work looking at a really, really early, I think like pre-birth kind of stages and looking at well, what is going on with the development of fascia and perhaps that's something we can then track. But that's going to be a long time coming because it's not just go and do a quick one study or a six month study it's going to be years and years over time and I think there's certainly interest in it I know my 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 I'm going to keep going on about my supervisor Kira because she's amazing but I really scanned some of the same people she scanned so I think she's hoping to kind of see if we can get the research to put those together because some of those have been like 10 years in between do we have any differences have we seen any kind of changes in their pain statuses but it's really hard to kind of knuckle that down and quantify i suppose that research when you know life happens in between so how can classes we... and triathlon mm-hmm. coaching yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's so healthy that it's so interesting hearing it's i don't know i don't want to go on too much about the modern researcher but it sounds like you know you're, you're constantly critically kind of thinking oh but challenging yourself challenging your expectations and not kind of doing kind of study where you're looking for this and therefore hey guess what you're finding this um, mm. and that seems to be a kind of a modern take and a little bit more realistic because in the past 
Yeah. I mean, researchers have been guilty of that. They've been looking for something and they found it because they were looking for it. So mm. it sounds really healthy, which is essentially what clinicians need to be doing as well. If they, if yeah. they do a course on, I don't know, this and that, and then suddenly the next hundred patients are going to have this and that. What a surprise. Mm. They're looking for it. So. But that's kind of how it's gone with research though. If we look at kind of back pain in general, when we first started being able to use x-rays, suddenly all the back pain was to do with the bone, to do with the spine. Then we started looking and being able to image the muscles and we're like, okay, it's all to do with the muscles. Now we're using ultrasound and we're looking at fascia. You know, we, it's kind of, I think, human nature to have that to a degree. And I think we just need to kind of remember that whatever we're doing is is building on something. And I'm, I think I found a bit preachy there, but it kind of is, you know, it's all... I don't think we could, it's really difficult to find something nowadays. It's like, this is that, you know, it's more likely to be this big picture and how can it all interplay, I suppose. That's great. And that's so, like I say, that's so similar to what should be happening in, in mm. you know, mm. we probably might not find the exact cause of your pain, but we're going to address these factors. You know, it could be a factor. And, and hey, if we keep doing a little bit of this, a little bit of this, guess what? You're not in pain anymore. You know, yeah. Do we know what fixed it exactly? No, but we're getting. But it works. It. it works, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, really interesting. Um, I wanted. Um, I was in. I think it'd be interesting for our listeners. Again, I'm sorry, podcast listeners, you can't see this image, but I just want to bring up these images which are on the PDF, and we will put a PDF in the show notes. And let me put that on a solo because it just kind of shows the participant demographics and mm-hmm. how did how I'm interested. How did you choose what sample size to have? How did you sort mm-hmm. that sort of thing out? Yeah, so we did maybe we did some power equations to work out kind of the minimum we'd need for each of these studies. And we also looked at well, what's existing elsewhere. This study was actually started the day of the lockdown. So I had all my labs booking. I had all of my participants lined up and then, nope, we're not allowed to do that. We can't get face to face. So it was all changed or cancelled, started again started again post all the lockdowns and then got a chest infection halfway through so we had to move it around and yeah if anyone here is thinking of doing a phd expect a roller coaster it really is like that even without a without the pandemic i swear this is just how it goes but yeah and then it was looking for participants so some of the participants with the no back pain group in this were my colleagues at the university for the low back pain group i actually recruited from local residents chats. So I have like the Canterbury residents group, there was Whitstable, Herm Bay, the neighbouring towns. And I put out a nice poster and just like, hey, I'm interested in back pain. Do you want to take part kind of thing? And it was actually, I mean, I sent out about 400 emails and I'm not exaggerating in that, but I got a nice chunk of people back that were really interested, really keen. And just, I mean, I can't thank them enough. Like I bought them all chocolate when I finished, but I'm on a research budget, so it wasn't very much chocolate, but it was like, thank you, thank you, have something. So yeah, it's I like recruiting. It's something I think is one of one of my favorite things of research, which perhaps is a bit strange, but I like I suppose because I'm working with people with pain, I I want to be able to try and give them something to kind of interesting, something to learn, because so often with well, with something that's chronic and going on, we're just kind of told, well, you've got to live with it now. And it's like, well, actually, I think people inherently want want to learn and want to, even if it's still not equivocal, we still don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. <laughs> Next time, I'll let you know. <laughs> but yeah, we don't always we don't always have the answer, and the research isn't always going to give us it in that clear cut manner. But it gives us something to think about, something to investigate. And I think we're inherently nosy, aren't we? As people, we want to learn something, we want to investigate ourselves, and. Yeah, it means I get to talk to people about fascia. So that was that was really cool. I think it's um, 
I don't know, but I, I know what, how I'm feeling, but I think for our listeners as well, it's encouraging to hear how how research truly works. Because again, it, mm-hmm. it takes researchers off the pedestal we imagine. It's everyday people like yourself having to send out emails, call people, make friends, say, please come in, oh, please. You know? <laughs> and then suddenly you're dealt with the world pandemic, which kind of puts, you know, it's, it's, I think it makes, we, we definitely need more research done. But it makes it more accessible to people thinking yeah. maybe oh, I could never do research. That's for the clever clogs. But I'm not saying you're not clever clogs. But it just it means it is accessible if you've got yeah. a passion for something and mm. you, you want to do this. Then you know it's it's hopefully it will encourage people to yeah, do it, definitely. especially clinicians. You know, especially mm. people who maybe fear academia and think oh, I could never do that. You can do it. Yeah, get involved. Like get involved in a research study. You know, obviously I'm down in Kent, but there are multiple universities that run sport therapy courses now but are doing similar stuff i think we're the only fascia team down in kent and, and literally the kent fascia team is our new name but but people are doing research take part see what's going on and ask how you can get involved there's always usually some sort of internships going on in summers you could always do a master's you know we have masters by research you could go and investigate fascia yourself and come and join our team you know we'd love it we want you know we want to know, well, certainly I do, and so does my supervisor, but what are you seeing in clinic that we don't, we don't know about? Because we all know from working with people, you see something over and over again, and actually you're like, why is no one doing anything about this? Because they don't know. How do you link those two up? And that, I think, is a really a big thing, is, is research dissemination, but not just from researchers to clinicians, but, but back, clinicians to researchers. You, clinicians can give us such eye-opening experiences to what they're seeing what's working for them what treatments are working because otherwise there's too much there's too much to cover and give us direction I think certainly I do I always want to hear from clinicians and what's working or not working for them so we can kind of try and quantify that in research yeah very encouraging wonderful right so it is going to go Get a little bit geeky now because we're going to show images of, of <laughs> ultrasound of that, which again, I'm excited that you're here to comment on that because I think it's something else, which again, we, we've talked so many times about non-physios, basically, whether it's a sports therapist, sports massage therapist, but having a bit of imposter syndrome. And I think maybe reading an ultrasound is something which put, strikes the fear into into any non-allied health professional because it's like oh my god that's a world i can't do and if a patient says oh, i could bring in my ultrasound if you want yeah, all sorts of excuses come up out of sports but i said no that's okay i don't want <laughs> um so i'm excited because <clears throat> obviously your whole thing about ultrasound let's bring up some images of what you found and then maybe you can talk us through the significance of the yeah so i'll prefix it with i do not have a formal qualification in msk ultrasound my supervisor does. Uh, she did a 12-month course. I think it was Southampton. Don't quote that. Somewhere somewhere south. And basically, she trained me in how to measure ultrasound. So I had like-for-like training and how to use this for thoracolumbar fascia. So I am, I'm not an expert. I, you told me to scan your elbow. I, I could manage it, but I couldn't guarantee what I'd be looking at. But in terms of fascia, I kind of, I understand the methodology behind it. And I can we did a reliability study and I could scan as reliably as my supervisor. So we know I can do it. <laughs> it's just a, yeah, in my little area of ultrasound. But yeah, so what I did was basically I took ultrasound images of the lower back, say between L2 and L3, two centimeters to the left to the right. And we did this on people with and without pain. So I'm kind of guessing at that image. I know that's one of my analysis software there, but I can, I can tell you that's definitely someone with pain from looking at it. So what we've got is basically that a MATLAB script. So if you're freaked out by ultrasound, this will make it even worse. So 
basically, we analyzed the scans using a piece of software called MATLAB, which uses literal code. So think developers, computer people to make this code. And I won't lie. My boyfriend helped me with it because he's a web developer. So he helped me make Shout this code boyfriend. work. Oh, yeah, it was very convenient. And what that could do was basically what I've done on that image there. And that's a the kind of the kind of section in the middle of a, a full ultrasound scan of the back is I could kind of sort out the zones that I was interested in, really. So I think if you have you can all see looking from the top there. So the kind of the red line that's going across the top and um, between the red and the green line is looking at the kind of subcutaneous zone. So on some people, this is going to be really, really small. Some people, this is going to be larger, depending on where you're holding your kind of adipose tissue, okay? And that's shown by kind of the darkest. So when an ultrasound is going down and bouncing those kind of beams back up to you, if it's kind of liquid or fat, it's going to show as black. Okay? So that's what we're seeing there. I then have the zones between the green line and the blue line. And that that's what I'm interested in. That's the thoracolumbar fascia here. Okay, So underneath that, you can see there's an additional kind of white line, kind of pale white. That's the kind of covering the muscle. And actually, you can't quite see it on there. But underneath there is all the muscle. And you can see all the kind of the striations there. So what I'm looking at in that kind of between the green and the blue is the kind of, oh, I've got a funny sound. Can you hear me okay? I feel you fine. Yeah, cool. Is the kind of the, the lines, which are the, the dense connected tissue and the loose connected tissue kind of lining up. They look very neat and tidy at this angle because of where I'm slicing through with the scanner. But in reality, they're more honeycombed up. And looking at the darkness between those lines, at the extracellular matrix, so the kind of the fluid that's between these layers, which allow them to glide. And actually, you can kind of see something I found in that image. So... We haven't managed to quantify this, but it's something, I mean, I certainly want to look into. And if you're at home, zoom in, pause the screen and zoom in later. You can see there's kind of two little pockets of kind of really dark areas inside that fascia. Can you see what I mean? Where it's kind of a bit bigger. It's kind of, uh, they're kind of this kind of shape in there, slightly up in the blue. Yeah. So I have a theory on this that it's very much theory, but basically what we were seeing in people with pain is they had more of these kind of pockets of this fluid. And what I think that is, is evidence that we've got reduction in shear strength, so reduction in that movement between the layers. And I'm going to do it with my hands because otherwise I can't explain it. So if, if we imagine the kind of the dense connective tissue layers are like logs and they're in a gel kind of water. So they're moving around happily, the fluid's moving, everything's good. If we then get kind of adhesions or it's just getting stuck or whatever and I imagine it's kind of sticking between the two you kind of get this kind of ballooning behind does that make sense so that's what I think is happening and I didn't measure shear strain so I, I don't know if that's true but I think we'll see these pockets when we've got that sticking because it's going to pull on the other side and that kind of makes sense to me so that's what I think is happening and Certainly what I'd like to go on and study would be to get away, to measure that shear strain, look at it. Have we got those pockets? Are they moving? Are they not? Because we certainly saw them in people with pain and we saw less of them after a while. So running theory needs some work, probably needs some samples taken out of there. I think Katerina Fede does a few samples in that down in Italy. But why? Because you, you can see it, right? You can see that there's something there. And what, why is it like that? Maybe it's just random. Maybe there is something going on. So that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of me. And yeah, my MATLAB script, basically, I put in those layers and it gives me some computational kind of numbers which work out the depth. So how deep it is from the skin, how thick it is effectively, and then those brightness. So I can look at how bright are the white lines compared to darkness and kind of is that different people with pain and no pain. 
I think I answered that. I may that's have great. I got excited. No, it's nice. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's really, it's really easy to understand you, I promise. It's great. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm hoping, again, if you listen to the podcast, then go along to YouTube. We're approximately at 39 minutes in or something, and you'll see the image come up. And, yeah, you can pause it, zoom in, and have mm. a little look yourself. But, yeah, no, fascinating. I was interested in the results you found. There was a, There was something which you said was different or in contrast to other studies where you mentioned echogenicity. I know I say Thracolumba different than you. You said oh. beautifully, but I, I, I'm probably wrong. I think I learned it in Spain where it's kind of Thracolumba. Yeah, like, it might not be you. It might. No, no, it's me. It's me. I promise you. It has been all my life. But, but yeah, so I'm reading it out from here. You said the echogenicity of the Thoracolumbar fascia in those with LVP was significantly lower when compared to control. This is in contrast to other studies where the efficacy yeah. was found to be higher. What's the significance of that and why do you think that was the case? I would argue potentially that that pain level, and that's oh. my, my running theory, is perhaps people with higher pain levels have a difference in echogenicity and perhaps on the low-level pains, perhaps that's slower to change because the echogenicity we generally look at kind of how dense those connective tissue layers are. If we look at an ultrasound, things coming back kind of brightish white are the most dense and hardest to get through. So kind of think about the kind of the, the fascia and the connective tissue covering bone. You see the kind of the outline. That's the brightest you're going to see. So potentially, if it is an adaptation to fascia and kind of the injury comes first, the fascia change comes second, then perhaps that takes a bit longer. Perhaps that takes higher pain levels to get those change. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's the honest answer. I don't know. That's my theory. You're hearing inside my brain now. So. <laughs> this is great. We're going deep into clear about your brain. So echogenicity sounds like a complicated word, but essentially we're just talking about the ability of the tissue to reflect, which is how kind of yeah, sound waves work. The brightness. Mm-hmm. Okay, and by the difference in visual, you can then kind of, contrast between different types of tissue and in your case you can see whether fascia has increased or decreased in people with pain is that the idea of it yeah yeah pretty much and i mean i haven't i haven't, haven't got an image of this there but obviously i i did over over 200 scans you know over right. the kind of time of my phd and and some people obviously you've seen the kind of poster i've got there i've used the nice ones haven't i because you're not going to show the ones that are difficult to read that's not that's not what we do is it as researchers or clinicians but some of the scans we looked at, and this wasn't just me, Kira found the same, and my external examiner, um, Professor Natalie Godreau in Canada, who also does some brilliant work here, said, were they always that easy to scan? Or did you find some that were an absolute nightmare? And you're like, yeah, some of them honestly look like cotton wool. They look like candy floss. And you're looking at this going, what am I looking at? You know, where are these layers? They're so messed up, for lack of a better word. And why? Why are they like this? You know, why is that connected tissue just not showing those nice lines? And if we look at someone without pain, we generally see, you know, it's thinner, but they look far more regimented, far more kind of tightly packed. And they look really neat. They look beautiful. You can literally look at them and go, oh, lovely. Mm. And then on the flip side of that, you've got the cotton wool. And you go, well, well, I'm not surprised you have pain because what is happening? <laughs> you know, that's not what we want to see. We want to see these nice lines. But I don't have, I'd show you if I had one in front of me and go, look, you know, cotton wool, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, unfortunately. Nikki Mansell's come up with a question here. You mean pockets of interstitial fluid kind of getting damned by tissue sticking? I wonder yeah. if the possible pressure buildup there might cause a nociceptive response where it pushes out on the fascia. Yeah, another theory. So let's, I think there's something got to be happening there, isn't it? We know 
certainly evidence is showing that reduction in shear strain is definitely seen in people with pain and also animal studies. There was a big, big animal study by Bishop in, I think it was 2018, don't quote that. And they basically immobilized a leg on a, on, on a pig and they also well, multiple and they injured one side of the fascia and noticed the massive, massive changes in shear strain kind of on the opposite side. So where was kind of trying to manage all of this. So there's certainly lots of evidence to say that shear strain reduces in pain. And, but what is causing that, whether it's the connective tissue, whether it's the fluid, we don't know. And, and I think, yeah, sticking and causing that kind of the dam, a dam is kind of a good idea of how to work that. But. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that does cause more pain because it's, I mean, if anything, if it's something's getting stuck, we know if we've had someone come in with a muscle injury, if they've got kind of stickiness, let's say around the IT band, it hurts, doesn't it? So we need to manipulate, we need to massage, we need to get them moving to move that and it alleviates that pain most of the time. So I think, yeah, but I, I, can't, I can't back that up with quantified evidence, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. That's- that's a great segue. You've just given me the perfect segue to my next question. So, okay, so the the your research has congratulations for being second paper, which has shown this, I think, because you said before there was only one. It's a great note too. Yeah, you just said, oh, so you know, if something's stuck, then we need to be able to move it and get it moving and stuff like that. So, what is the significance of this? Do you think for clinicians? Yeah. So, yeah. So. The answer is I tried to do a big six-month study to say, yes, this type of exercise cures it. And I found nothing significant. So I don't have a clear-cut answer for you. But I did see a trend, okay? So I found with all that exercise, and basically what I did in that was there are some studies coming out with kind of specific manual therapies and stretching, but I I looked at the exercise kind of angle and that Mm -hmm. returning to movement and that kind of rehabilitation approach in that respect. And we did say those hour classes had a mixture of kind of typical gentle aerobic of course I'm with a population with pain and then that kind of alternate movement so if you think about one arm going one the leg going the other trying to move that fascia in as many directions as possible and then some kind of core strengthening work okay so I I went with that because it's the most typically used people with pack pain you know it's the most safe it's the most effective if you look at kind of reducing pain levels so so that was the argument behind it and we saw a, a proper trend towards a reduction in that thickness so what I need to do is do, I think, probably a longer study. I think fascia takes a very, very long time to change. There's been sort of some hypothesis around this. If you look at Robert Slight, he, I think, one of the first to say, we're looking at six months plus, you know, maybe 24 months for these changes. If we look at connective tissue in other types, so tendon, if we look at ligament, if we look at just kind of how that fast that turning over, we are looking at over six months. So I think whatever we're doing, I think I think exercise will be able to adapt fascia. I think manual therapy will be able to adapt fascia, but I think it's going to take a long time. I don't think it's going to be, oh, we'll bring you in for four sessions and we'll fix it. I think it's going to be a case of us working with these kind of treatment plans and stuff these clients can do at home because I don't want to have someone keep coming back to me every single week for the rest of their life. Potentially, I want them to be able to take something back and learn from it and do it themselves. But I think we've got we got somewhere to go to kind of find out what exactly is the answer. I I think I'm I'm very confident the fascia will we will find this target fascia which helps back pain. But yeah, we've got a we've got a lot to do there to actually quantify that. And I'm sure some of the listeners here would probably actually agree that you know well they've done X treatment and it worked for 
perhaps it's back pain, perhaps it's other injuries, but there might not be that nice stamp of approval with the, the nice guidelines or World Health Organization that says definitely do this. Yeah, but I think, yeah, we've just got to keep trial and error. We've got to keep doing it. We've got to keep researching and bringing out these big studies because as often with research, I'm not sure how many researchers you have on, it's often an acute study. Someone comes in and does one session with a personal trainer or whatever that is, or it's four weeks, whereas actually we're looking at chronic health. We need to kind of look at longer duration studies and see how it's going to work in the long term. And maybe if I scan all my participants again 12 months later and see if see if they've kept up the uh, the routine. They have got YouTube videos of what to do. So maybe I'll see that. I'll have to get some more ethics in. <laughs> yes, sounds like a good idea. <laughs> do you think either... Is there any particular exercise or manual therapy which affects the fashion more, which mm. we can, which we can do, do that on purpose than other tissues in the body? Or is it just a case of any movement will affect the fascia and the muscle at the same time because you can't separate the two? So what, yeah, it is all connected. And I think that, that term connected is kind of what I would say is your take home here. So we know that the fascia is covering the whole body. So the most movement and manipulations and massage we can do that target multiple kind of body sites following those you look at body slings you know and mm-hmm. following it all the whole posterior chain i think that will be far more likely to target fascia if we look at doing rehab exercises and and even myofascial release and everything which is going your body's going one way we're going the other keeping those direction changes i think would certainly have more of an impact here and that's been discussed in a few different books but again not fully quantified but you know that that is where I think the research is going. That is what I would expect to see coming out is that multi-directional kind of treatments. And I think most of us are doing that anyway. You know, we don't just treat a muscle in the same way all the time, do we? We try and bring in the movement, whether it's active, whether it's passive and trying to put it all together. So I think naturally we're gravitating that way. And I think the evidence is going to, it will back that up. It's just a case of when. What do you think of, the idea that kind of maps of fascia and 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 following that and doing movements which follow those maps is that something which you're into as well or do you think it's that's a little bit pinpointing it too much or targeting too much potentially too much and i have and i i might not get friends for this but i've seen a lot of the whole kind of people coming out with specific fascia training you know you have to do this you have to do that and you'll work on fascia and i think that that's jumping a bit i don't think we're there yet to tell you exactly what training method exactly what manual therapy treatment you know I I don't think we're there I think we've got hints of what we think it will be but ultimately they're all all people like me going I think it's this I might be wrong people have been wrong over the years I mean they thought fascia was packing material which we know it definitely isn't now but we're constantly learning and building upon who's been there before us and who's kind of built something else every single research paper that comes out from fascia is hitching us more and more and more we've got more journals taking notice i know the journal of bodywork and movement therapy are creating a fascia special issue right now so we've got a whole issue coming out to do with fascia you guys are talking to me about fascia which i mean it's my first podcast so you're risking it and i'm risking it here but you know we're talking about it aren't we and i think you know there's the conferences i, I i'm one of the board of directors for the fascia research society which again i got into because i need to know more and you know it. There's more and more and more building, I think, globally, probably more so than nationally. I think there's not many of us, fascia researchers in the UK, but 
we're trying, we're trying to build and we're trying to learn and understand as much as possible so that we can really kind of understand this and give everyone who's working in these populations a nice guy. That's what we want. I want to find something where I can go, this works, pass this on and get this working in, in clinics because otherwise, yeah, it's pointless. It's absolutely pointless if I don't pass that down and we don't find what works because, yeah, brilliant. My view. It's <laughs> great. You know, it sounds like we're lucky to have you on the board. Um, <laughs> and Anne's got a great question here. I'll read out if that's okay with you. Anne Cochrane says, very interesting work, Claire. Have you looked at the work by McLaren MSTR effects on fascia scars and correlation to such things, for example, as back pain from C section? Wouldn't it have been great if it also yeah. had scans of your square box? Yeah, so I've seen a little, very little, but yeah, certainly. It's, well, we've got to do some sort of collaboration, don't we? I mean, Kira and I, and now she's got a master's student, Tracy Meller, as well. So there's kind of three of us over here with these huge number of scans now. So we've, we've got these scans. We need to do something with it and, yeah, make it a bit bigger and make it a bit more accessible. And there, there, there's talks, let's put it that way. We're talking, we're trying, we're trying to kind of collaborate and get more out there because we're only small. Everyone's such a nuanced and kind of new area we all need to jump together and and share this research and get it out there and that is happening marvelous okay thanks for the question and great question right well look it's already 8 52 if people want further information on this obviously they can have a look at your studies but is there any particular sources which you would recommend or website that they go to so Check out the Fascia Research Society. Definitely, you know, they're always talking about Fascia. They run webinars and all sorts. You can, you can obviously join as a member, but you can also pay to view them separately. And I'm, I'm not on commission. I'm a volunteer, I promise. So, but there are things like that that's happening. Get on Google Scholar. Get looking at what journals exist, following those new articles. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I will share everything obsessively that I find out. And we'll kind of go from there, really. But it's, I think talking about it, you know, there's there's been evidence, evidence is the wrong word, there's been researchers now starting to talk about that need for that collaboration and talking with the clinicians. So we're really, I think, at the kind of beginning of that at the moment, which perhaps is a bit far behind, but we want to collaborate, we want to talk, we want to get that discussion going on between clinicians and researchers. So I think keep your eyes peeled, really, I suppose, is the outcome from that. Wonderful. So if, uh, we'll make sure again, these links obviously go into show notes, but it's Fascia Research Society. Is that a dot com? I think it's dot org. Is, is it a dot org? There we go. Dot org. We'll make sure that goes in there. Uh, and also you mentioned on Twitter, you're Claire M. Boucher. Is Boucher. that right? Yeah, pretty sure. So C L A I R E M B O U C H E R. And then yeah. you mentioned Instagram as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't say Instagram, but you can look That's at my not... Instagram. No, nope, I, <laughs> I said LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn, sorry. I'm My Instagram it. is mostly me doing fun activities. So, I mean, you can watch it, but it's not all fun. It's not going to be as informative. No. It might be loads of spinning pics and, and, and yeah. And, and yeah, there's a lot of open water stuff on there and suddenly a kayak comes in. You're like, what is she talking about? <laughs> okay, so LinkedIn then. Yeah, I mean, I've got so much information from LinkedIn. That'd be great um, yeah. for people to go to that. Yeah, I've been told I'm a bit obsessive with my LinkedIn. I'm constantly posting stuff and everyone's like, my God, she's on it. And I'm like, but it is, you know how people say with Instagram, it's the kind of the highlights reel. Mm. LinkedIn is my highlights reel of research. So but it's not been as nice and clear cut as that. There has been drama. <laughs> and fantastic. We're looking up now. Okay, about <laughs> you on LinkedIn. 
And uh, Nikki Mansfield says, CB, I'm presuming that's clear about you. Yes, CB is my new favorite researcher. Oh, thank you. A genuine passion for the subject and for clinical significance, mm-hmm. akin to Schleitz. Oh, there we go. Who's part of the fresh, fresh research? Yeah, our founding well, director. There you go, founding like director. So that's great. So did you work with him directly then? And So I have had the pleasure. I haven't worked with him on like academic work or research yeah. work, but yeah, we, he's on the board of me. I spoke to him last night. In fact. There you go. <laughs> wow. There you go. Yeah. Excellent. We'll see if he's through the show. That'd be nice to get him on at some point. And, yeah. <laughs> but, but, brilliant. Yeah. I'll tell you what, he probably wouldn't do a better job than you because yeah. you managed to break this down the same way as many people try to break down fashion with their elbows. It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made it very clear. And um, I'm really infectious as well. Your passion shines through. So I really thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I'm, I, especially after you've had a very busy day. Um, mm-hmm. So I appreciate you coming along. Thank you very much. No, I really appreciate it. And I, I don't think I said anything stupid. So first podcast. Nothing. <laughs> Not even slightly. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> right, great. So thank you, everybody who joined us in the live lounge. Obviously, I'm sure that was interesting, entertaining for you. If you listen to podcasts, then thank you very much for listening. Do please, if you did enjoy this, then please leave a rating and a review on your app, particularly on Apple, because it just helps it get found easier on google it's as simple as that and the good word of our amazing guests like claire voucher will appear high in the results and that's the way to disseminate this information okay mm-hmm. it's not a money thing it's just more people who rate it the more it gets out it's like chip advice or something will move towards the top so please take two minutes to do that we will be back next week oh yes right important stuff coming up so if you listen to the podcast or you're listening to the live lounge next tuesday at eight o'clock we're going to start a three-part series called something like how to set up a massage therapy business and um, we're going to do three parts first one's going to be at your home so including people are thinking or already doing it in kind of a room or a garage or building a purpose-built shed we're also going to have part two which will be episode 187 a week later which is in a rented room so working in the gym or something or so we can talk about that and part three will be in events now when i say we we're going to have a panel again so we're looking for volunteers from the sta who would like to be part of that panel share their experiences share their wisdom um, and help members and non-members learn so if you're interested in being part of that panel and even if you're scared but kind of interested then talk to me i'm friendly i won't shout at you or anything just email me matt at the sda.co.uk and i'll help build up your confidence because essentially it's just talking about what you do on the cam here the same as claire has been okay it's not has it been scary claire it was before I started, but at the party vibe, you guys fixed it exactly. by having a happy vibe. So, yeah. Oh, really well. So, there you go. You will be scared before you start, but you soon ease into it. So, yeah, if you're interested in being part of that panel, just to help us share um, your experience, because members love, and non members, tissue therapists love hearing about each other's work. And it's a great way of learning as well. So, yeah, Matt at the STA.co.uk. And, um, right, that's it. Thanks to everyone who joined us live. Like I said, to our special guest for this episode, Claire Boucher. Everything we're going to show notes for links and how to follow Claire. And if you are interested in joining us live, then Tuesday, eight o'clock, either on YouTube or Facebook, Sports Derby Association page or group. And in the meantime, thank you very much and take care of each other. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.